Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 25th of July. Good morning. With much debate and a discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. I'm about to go to Buckingham Palace to tender my resignation to Her Majesty the Queen and to advise her to ask Boris Johnson to form a new administration. We're living through historic times with a changing of the guard in the United Kingdom. It is time to change the record, to recover our natural and historic role as an enterprising, outward-looking and truly global Britain. Boris Johnson achieves his greatest personal ambition. I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government, and I have accepted The new Prime Minister speaks outside of Downing Street to the people of the United Kingdom, outlining his vision for change and indeed talking about an awful lot of domestic issues. At home, we're watching to see what Mr Johnson has to say about Ireland, Northern Ireland, the role in the European Union and indeed how Brexit might happen and what he thinks of a backstop. Never mind the backstop, the buck stops here. Mairead McGuinness, first vice president of uh, the European Parliament and Fine Gael MEP, joins us this morning. Good morning to you, Mairead McGuinness, and thank you indeed for taking the time to be with us. A lot of interest in the United Kingdom, obviously, at what the new Prime Minister has to say, a lot of interest here, but uh, indeed a lot of interest right across Europe, given the pivotal moment in time that we're living in, in terms of Brexit. Yes, well, good morning, Michael, and to your listeners as well. I mean, yes, there's a lot of focus on the United Kingdom. There always is when there's a change of leadership, but I suppose it's been such a dramatic and perhaps traumatic um, change of the guard in the UK that anyone interested in politics was watching. Uh, And I suppose yesterday the result wasn't a great surprise. So in a sense of a reaction here in Brussels, um, people had factored in that uh, Boris Johnson would be the new prime minister. He now has that role. And I suppose we remain to see exactly how he he will perform in the role. We know what he was saying prior to his election by his Conservative Party colleagues. Um, He is very determined in terms of Brexit to leave the European Union on October the 31st. And he has made those quite dramatic uh, statements that you've just played there. Um, It is interesting that Donald Tusk sent a one-line congratulatory note but saying that he looks forward to discussing in detail this future relationship, you know, between the European Union and the United Kingdom. So I think we'll have to watch and see how things settle 
in the UK before really understanding fully what might happen um, in September, let alone what will happen possibly on October the 31st. And that one line is seen as somewhat condescending as a, a criticism of Mr Johnson's uh, lack of attention to detail. Well, I suppose he's pointing out the obvious that Brexit is not a headline. It's a very detailed forensic review of the relationship as a full member and then what the impact will be when you leave in an orderly way and perhaps then in a disorderly way. So details do matter. They perhaps don't translate into headlines on newspapers or uh, media um, events. But in fact, behind the headline, you have to actually work through the detail. And I think that, you know, Donald Tusk is always very clear he usually is quite brief, and in that line, I think he was saying, look, we do have to sit down and talk, and it will take time because details matter. And that's why the withdrawal agreement is quite a lengthy document, because it has dealt with a lot of detail. Mm. We haven't got to the new relationship. But Mr. Johnson is going to renegotiate it. I mean, all of that stuff from Europe, as far as Mr. Johnson is concerned, is just rhetoric. Indeed, and I suppose we would regard much of what he says as similar, so we have a problem, because... Um, we have, at this stage, uh, an agreement in place with the former Prime Minister. We have a new Prime Minister who is tearing it up. Um, he wants to renegotiate. He believes he will be able to do that before um, the deadline of October the 31st. It was really very difficult, um, if you look back on the two years of negotiations of what's on the table now, to get through the detail in two years. There was a lot of toing and throwing. So I suppose I do question whether you can start from scratch, even if Europe was willing to do that, which Europe is not willing to do because of what is now agreed. Um, So I think we have a difficulty here that none of us quite know what way it will pan out because we are dealing with a new prime minister. Um, He really is, is talking to the nation of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland in a way almost suggesting that up to now it has been a weak nation and now that he you know, is in power and in mm. control as Prime Minister, greatness will befall um, Great Britain again. And I suppose that's a little bit surprising because it is a big nation, it is a great mm. nation. Um, we do not think it was diminished by being part of Europe, uh, but obviously he holds a very different view and always has, even when he was here as a journalist. So we don't know what will happen. And I think that is a difficulty mm. for our region. He's a bombastic character, and that's the bombastic message from Mr. Johnson. And what he is saying to the people of the United Kingdom is, unlike what you've just said there, Europe is willing to change its mind. Sure, hasn't it done that before? We've to hear properly from Mr. Johnson. Indeed, he'll be mm-hmm. taking questions in Parliament uh, today before they go into recess, ironically enough. Uh, but uh, undoubtedly, he'll be asked some very pertinent questions, but we got a, a feel for his thinking this morning from his new Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Rishi Sunak, who has been talking about the reaction to Mr Johnson's speech from Europe. Well, they might not like the fact that we're toughening up, and fair enough, it's a negotiation, but you know, they've also said lots of things in the past that they've ultimately gone back on. They said they would never give an extension until we pass a withdrawal agreement. They didn't just give one, they gave a couple. You know, you've had European commissioners and others on your programme who have, have moderated their tone about the changes that might be possible. You not, know, this with is, the, uh, not with the withdrawal agreement itself, though. They've stood firm by that. But they've also said previously there wouldn't be any legally binding changes to anything, and yet they came up with legal codicils to improve the terms of our exit already once. So, you know, let's get into it. We're going to be very well prepared. We're going to be tough and resolute about it, but also be, be generous and constructive in our attitude. I think that's the right approach. Maureen McGuinness, who needs detail when you've got a positive attitude? 
Well, I suppose I'll be generous in my comment and saying constructive is the word I'll pick out of that. Um, I do think, obviously, with a new regime with a particular focus, there is a real sense of can do, will do, do or die, I think is the, is the term that has been used. Um, but very often when you go into the office that you've, you know, wanted to be, as you said in your introduction, for forever, this was Boris Johnson's ambition, the realities of office may prove very different. I mean, I think Europe is very willing to sit down and talk, so we're not saying there's no discussion. What has been very clear, and it's the leaders of the EU27 um, and the countries have said we will not reopen the withdrawal agreement because it took a lot of effort to get to this place, but there is a very, very big willingness to reopen the political declaration. Um, And I think that perhaps um, there is a deliberate confusion between those two things, but it couldn't be clearer here. Um, And I think that that will just firm up over the recess. When we come back in September, it will not have changed. Um, And we will then really have to sit down, you know, as partners, you know, with different Mm. perspectives, and see, can we get through this without harming each other more than a Brexit will, even an orderly one, will, I think, cause damage to both parties. But the objective has to be to limit that. When it comes to another extension, which um, was mentioned there, that Europe gave extensions, it was at the request of the United Kingdom. So if that was to happen again, um, it would be Boris Johnson who would have to request an extension. And, of course, the purpose would have to be explained as well. Well, he may need to go to the electorate, uh, given what happened overnight. Uh, He's uh, 17 previously powerful people who held ministerial office who are now on the back benches. 17 ministers gone overnight, either through resignations or by him sacking them. I imagine, uh, if we forget about Brexit, uh, it's well worth mentioning how dramatic a changeover it is. Uh, I mean, people like Albert Reynolds or Harold Wilson or Theresa May may be looking at Mr Johnson saying, God, I thought I was bad. This really was the night of the long knives. Well, it was. And I suppose I haven't even got my head around some of the names yet and the portfolios they're going to have. But I think he's very clearly putting his stamp, um, as most leaders do, but in a particularly, I suppose, aggressive way that he's called those who don't think like him or act like him. And he's brought into the fold those who support him. Um, and I suppose sometimes great leaders are surrounded by people who actually will challenge them rather than kowtow. So it'll be interesting to see how the relationships develop. But I think more importantly, the point you make is really valid, that the House of Commons, the numbers are not in his favour. You know, the, the support for votes within the House of Commons for him will be very marginal. And I think an election is probably in the offing, but when and how that might be triggered, none of us know that. But I think it's it's strange if you look back to 2016, which seems very far away. When that um, result of the referendum was announced, I don't think any of us in the conversations we had predicted that three years down the line, there would be three prime ministers Mm. in the United Kingdom. There would be um, a a minority government effectively being propped up by the DUP and now a new cabinet that is very gung-ho Brexit. Mm. Um, So, so, you know, there are twists and turns in this saga, which I don't think we can predict at this point. We have to keep a cool head, even though the weather here is appallingly hot. And I think that's more of a worry for us at the minute. But genuinely, Europe has to be calm and cool, stick to where we have agreed Let us see, I suppose, what the Prime Minister or his negotiators will offer or suggest. And then we will just have to answer in the best way we can. And we have to look after our own interests in the European Union rather than try and, and, you know, react in a way that the British Prime Minister thinks we will, that we will, Mm. you know, give in, because I think that that's not how Europe works. 
Some well-known names, indeed, some important people on this island have left office. Karen Bradley, James Brokenshire, and we've a new Northern Ireland secretary in the way of Julian Smith, an entrepreneur, as I understand it, who grew up in Scotland and has been a supporter of Mr Johnson for some time. There is some concern about his interest in Northern Ireland and if he is the appropriate candidate. Do you know anything? about Julian Smith or or what he knows about Northern Ireland or uh, the complexities of uh, the divisions in the community there. Sinn Féin has been saying the only thing that they know about him is that he attended a DUP conference. Well, I suppose um, we're all trying to be a bit gracious and see is there, you know, some hope there that the individual will understand the history, the makeup, the divisions, the you know, the whole peace process in Northern Ireland. And if they don't understand or know it, that they will take the time go there and listen rather than come with uh, preconceived ideas about what can work Mm. because it is very complicated. I think that the the outgoing secretary um, for Northern Ireland really didn't do that job particularly well and had very little knowledge and it didn't help in terms of trying to rebuild trust between the parties and the communities. So um, we don't want to condemn anyone who's just been appointed. It wouldn't be fair. But we would ask that people, particularly in the sensitivities around Northern Ireland, would take the time to study and listen and learn and talk I think you talk to counterparts uh, in uh, Dublin who would be very willing to do that because it's in all our interests that we, you know, get information out there. And I suppose going back to the overall, you know, what will happen in October, I suppose one of the most testing things for us is that we are two parties trying to negotiate, but we actually don't agree what the agenda is because the United Kingdom doesn't quite understand the European mm. Union in the way that Europe is. So it doesn't understand the rules and the procedures and processes. Um, so therefore, there is a sense that you can tear all that up and start with a blank page. And that's where I think the difficulty lies. If we could only get an understanding of how we actually need to proceed. Um, so, like, for example, a withdrawal agreement, um, an implementation period leads time to work mm. towards a future relationship. That's orderly. That's rules-based. That works. Do you, do you, you think we're in trouble, that. though? Uh, 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 do you think we're in trouble in that uh, there seems to be a belief that the new Prime Minister has and Mr Johnson's supporters have that if he can bring the divided opinion in the United Kingdom together and find some sort of consensus, well, then they'll find a way forward. Uh, that's uh, finding uh, agreement on one side of the deal and ignoring the other side of the deal who you have to make the agreement with, namely the other 27 European countries. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea that um, the incoming Prime Minister Boris Johnson will unite his own nation is a little bit far from reality, even though he talks in that direction. I think British society is very divided. British politics is deeply divided. I talked to colleagues who've been re-elected here to the European Parliament And, you know, it's been very traumatic for them, even when they were campaigning for the European elections, particularly those who were campaigning for Remain. So I don't know if Boris Johnson Mm. is the man to unite his own nation, and therefore he comes perhaps to the negotiating table with only his own view. And I think sometimes to negotiate effectively, you have to understand the other side, um, where they're coming from, almost better than your own, because then you can negotiate more effectively. And I Mm. hope he'd get to that place or if he doesn't directly negotiate, that those who will, will come to that place. When you ask, are we in trouble? I think, you know, there's trouble everywhere at Mm -hmm. the moment. Um, In every part of the world, there's trouble. And it's usually because the politics have become quite fractured. 
and quite populist and people are getting support for that type of politics. So are we in any deeper trouble than we were three years ago? Perhaps not, but I, I, mm. I would be worried just right now. Okay, well, it, the things it, it, that it, we that... thought would happen just could be closer to, to happening, this idea of a no-deal Brexit. If that idea of us being in trouble is the glass half full, could we maybe look at the glass half or half empty? Let's look at it half full. Is this an opportunity in that perhaps this will just push this thing along a little bit? Well, look, it's been pushed along for three years and mm. it, it actually moved very slowly despite the efforts being made. Um, I, I don't think that just talking the story up will make... Uh, you know, for a good result. I think that the only way you get a good result between the parties is hard work around the negotiating table. So therefore, I, in one sense, while I read and listen to what's being said, I'm much more interested after the summer recess to see what will be done, because what is said is usually more than mm. what is done. In this case, we need more to be done than said, if you, if you understand the point, because we've mm. talked this through so many times, but we have a new team now. Well, what are you um, saying is that they will leave without a deal, but what I meant yeah. by pushing it forward, is it pushing it forward to an election or a referendum and to try and bring some sense well, and logic to it all? Mm, I mean, the referendum now, I don't think it looks mm. further away, that's my own observation. An election looks closer because of the numbers and indeed uh, because he may wish to you know, go to the country with the message of defeating Jeremy Corbyn. So again, what, what that speaks to is that while Europe and the Brexit thing is, is a big issue for us, obviously, in, here in Europe, that, you know, it's the internal politics for him. It's holding on to power. Um, it's the Conservative Party again before anything else. Um, but there's very little we can change about that. That is how it is. And we just have to try and make sure that when things settle, if they ever do in September, that there is some clear talking, um, because it is the only way we're going to make progress. I mean, shouting through the airways won't. Um, in fact, it makes things worse. So I think a lot of the colleagues here who have been watching the election of Boris Johnson, you know, really turned down the dial because there's no point in reacting to some of the language of a, an election campaign. I think it's more interesting now to see what the language will be um, as a cabinet, as a, 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 you know, a team in government now in power with other issues like for Iran, for example, domestic issues. You know, there isn't exactly just one problem for Boris Johnson to face, which is Brexit. There's a myriad of problems. So I think his mind will be, you know, well focused on them. And, you know, his previous records uh, in government, I suppose, was that he left rather than stayed the course. Uh, when things got tough. So let's just see. Okay, we will indeed. We'll find out. Uh, it's upon us. Thank you indeed uh, for joining Good us morning, this morning. Fine Gael, MEP, Maid McGuinness, Vice President of the European Parliament. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, we have a housing and homelessness crisis in uh, this country and anybody looking for somewhere to live will tell you that it's very, very difficult to to find accommodation which puts extra pressure on students who might be starting in college in September. And if finding somewhere suitable to live isn't bad enough, if finding somewhere affordable to live isn't hard enough and if getting in ahead of the queues isn't challenging enough, there's a warning for students this morning that they need to watch out for scams. Let's hear more from Marie Lyons, who's Vice President for the Border Midlands and Western Region of USI. That's the Union of Students of Ireland. Good morning to you, Marie, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, students are, are being scammed. How so? Yes, so we're actually seeing, um, so this morning, um, Fraud Smart was actually launched 
So it's an association with ourselves and uni students in Ireland and Angora Siakona and the Banking and Payment Federation of Ireland. So we're seeing a lot of students who are actually um, frauded by um, people who are renting areas like holiday or short lists themselves and actually advertising these lists on um, housing and accommodation sites and then actually charging those um, students and their families and collecting um, multiple deposits from them and for most of these people as well. And we also have um, fraudsters who actually re-advertise actual listings using their own phone numbers or emails and actually gaining a lot of um, money from those people as well. So there's a lot of different okay. ways that they're being frauded. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if you have us on speaker there, Marie, but it's uh, very difficult to hear what you're saying. Uh, but uh, people are looking for deposits for flats that don't exist, is it? Exactly, yeah. We're seeing fraudsters who are actually um, getting deposits from from apartments that don't actually exist, or sometimes they're actually shortletting or getting holiday leases themselves and actually advertising these and then renting them out. Well, apparently renting them out and then actually not, um, and actually gaining deposits from people. Okay. Uh, and what is the advice to students uh, in terms of protecting themselves? Hmm. So today, actually, the Fraud Fart uh, campaign actually has three key areas, so to be informed actually do your homework and familiarise yourself with the average rents in your different areas that you're searching. Um, so if it actually seems too good to be true, often it can be too good to be true. Uh, we would say also to use online maps to confirm that actual that property does exist. Um, we'd also say to be secure to make sure you actually don't hand over any deposits until you've actually viewed the accommodation and to make sure it's okay. Um, making sure that the landlord themselves is registered with the RTB, which is the Residential Tenancy Board, um, and making sure that you confirm the property actually exists and being safe and being alert. Okay. We'll leave it there, uh, Marie. Uh, the line is uh, pretty bad, uh, but thanks uh, for joining us. Marie Lyons, Vice President uh, for the Border, Midlands and Western Region of uh, the Union of Students of Ireland. Now, let's take a look at how the page, uh, the newspapers in the UK are covering uh, the new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, today. And we'll look at uh, the front pages uh, this morning, beginning with the eye which says Brexiteers take over after his pledge to unite Britain, new Prime Minister Boris Johnson fires or forces out most of Cabinet, sending powerful critics to the back benches. All key jobs go to pro-Brexit Tories. Sajid Javid is appointed Chancellor. Dominic Raab is Foreign Secretary. Priti Patel becomes Home Secretary. Whitehall blocked by hundreds of anti-Johnson protesters. Scottish nationalists reiterate plan to hold a new independent vote. And if you think that's a detailed headline on the front page. Uh, There's uh, at least a dozen pages inside the paper covering the new Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The Daily Express says Boris waves in a new era. Sajid Javid as Chancellor, Priti Patel, Home Secretary. Brexit deadlock will be cracked with better deal. Unquote. Social care tops agenda. Ruthless Johnson takes his revenge. That's the headline on the front page of The Guardian this morning. Out, Hunt, Mordaunt, Fox and Clark among those losing their jobs and brutal purge of cabinet detractors in Patel takes over as Home Secretary. Javid named as Chancellor and Rab becomes Foreign Secretary. New PM promises to defy doubters and doomsters with Brexit deal by the 31st of October in Downing Street address. The Sun, Night of the Blonde Knives as PM Boris takes over. Hunt is chopped in mega cub. Top jobs to Saj, Pretty and Rab. Financial Times, Johnson picks hardcore cabinet to meet 99 Brexit deadline. May's team ripped apart. Javid becomes Chancellor Rab appointed Foreign Secretary. The Times of London, Johnson's afternoon of 
cabinet carnage, record 17 ministers go in five frenzied hours. PM gives top jobs to Javid Patel and drab government runs no deal plans, but Hunt is sacked. Buck stops here is the headline on the Metro. Never mind the backstop, the buck stops here, as we heard earlier on the quote from Boris Johnson, who wields the axe on May's cabinet in first hours as PM. The Daily Telegraph, uh, the people who bet against Britain are going to lose their shirts, unquote the British Prime Minister again, making for the front page there. The Daily Mail, no different, with Boris Johnson again photographed in all of these papers. All guns blazing is the headline, cabinet Massacre sees 17 ministers out on new PM's first day. Barnstorming Boris in £39 billion EU no-deal ultimatum. Victory for mail as he vows to end dementia care scandal. And uh, the mirror then uh, starts uh, to highlight uh, one of Boris's first gaffes. Boris gaff already is the headline. I don't know why anyone would want the job. Uh, now, I suppose a lot of people might say that, uh, but uh, the story here refers to Boris Johnson breaching protocol because he came out of his meeting with Queen Elizabeth who asked him to form a government saying the Queen said to him I don't know why anyone would want the job. Inept PM reveals Queen's verdict before cabinet bloodbath. That's the front page of the Daily Mirror in the United Kingdom this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Taoiseach says he's uh, demoted uh, Maria Bailey over the swing gate affair because of uh, some inconsistencies in her story, but uh, that her claim had not been fraudulent. Yesterday on the programme, I asked uh, Minister Helen McEntee if uh, the Taoiseach had actually bottled it and decided not to sanction her. Well, I think he very clearly has sanctioned her the the chair of the Housing Committee is quite in, I suppose if if you look at all the committees it's one of the more high profile committees and to lose that um, is certainly not uh, having no action taken against her it's obviously been a very very much a focus of the media for the past number of months. She's kept the whip. And on her personal case. Many in Fine Gael feel she should have lost the party whip. Well, I've, I've read reports, I'm sure, as everybody else had, that there are some who are unhappy. Personally, I accept the decision that the Taoiseach has taken. He is the one who's party to uh, the internal inquiry. And, and I, again, accept why it's not been published. There were people who took part in the understanding that it was uh, not to be published. Um, but there were some elements of it which were made public in his statement yesterday. The fact that she was injured, the fact that the case itself was taken, it, it was found to be not fraudulent. But... There were elements of it, and okay, do you, do you, we could accept, all see publicly how. Do you accept there's the division in Finnegale over this? Well, again, I've not spoken to any of my colleagues on this since yesterday. Okay, um, so okay. okay. What about? I've been in my constituency. Okay, so I haven't, okay. haven't spoken to anybody okay. on it. All right, Kevin Doyle, uh, group political editor with Independent News and Media, who first first told us about uh, the claims uh, being made uh, by Maria Bailey and has been running stories in relation to this since then, is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Kevin Doyle, and thanks uh, for joining us. The Irish Independent reporting this morning that there is actually revolt from local Fine Gael members in the wake of all of this. Uh, is that a, across the board or is it just a Maria Bailey's constituency? No, I think it's across the board. There, there are mixed views uh, within the party, definitely, and I suppose that's to be expected because this has been such a huge controversy. It has really, really damaged Fine Gael. It has brought the whole issue of compensation culture and insurance costs front and centre, and that is an issue that the government stand accused of having failed to take adequate action on. Um, 
So there are differing views. Some people feel on a compassionate level that the Taoiseach went far enough. He has punished her um, and that to go any further might uh, might be too much. But there are others who say the damage she has done to the party means that she should be thrown out of it. Um, and it is as simple as that. So it, it is split. There's no doubt about it. And I suppose it, it's, it's, if he had gone the other way and gone the whole hog and, and taken the party whip off her, there would be others who would say it was too harsh. So he was never going to please all of the people, but it is an interesting divide um, that has now been created within Fine Gael. And how serious is that for the party or how serious might it be for the party? Well, I think looking at it from uh, the perspective, I think outside of the, the party, this is the softest punishment that he could have handed down to Maria Bailey. And part of the reason uh, Taoiseach intimated that this is as far as he went was because he feels that she's been under enormous media and political pressure over the last two months since this story first broke in May. Um, and that that in itself was a level of punishment. Now, there is an argument to say, well, no, that's not how it works. If, if you If you do something wrong, you have to have the formal punishment. It's not enough to say that you've just been... Getting, got a, a public flogging um, but I think for Maria Bailey the opposition will probably leave it at this in terms of her element here mm. um, and I think they have their eyes set elsewhere at this stage And elsewhere means uh, another minister Josepha Madigan who has uh, been uh, the subject of much criticism Michal Martin has been asking her to make uh, a statement and bring transparency to her role in advising Maria Bailey uh, and indeed uh, the leader of uh, the Green Party has asked many questions uh, about uh, Josepha Madigan's role in all of this as well yeah, and the Labour leader, Brendan Howland. So she is getting it from all sides now. And essentially, um, there is a series of questions for Josephine Madigan to ask. We, we were told in the Taoiseach statement um, that she did advise in the early stages of this case when it went to the Personal Injuries Assessment Board, which is kind of stage one of making a claim like this. this that's kind of, if you're making a claim where you hope that the, the, the party you're, you're taking against will settle uh, and, and make a quick payout and it doesn't have to go to court. But in this particular case, the Dean Hotel, which is where the, the now infamous swing was and still is, mm. I think it's one of the most photographed uh, things in Dublin this summer, um, but they decided to contest it. They weren't happy to settle and, and that's why it was moving on to the court stage uh, before Maria Bailey dropped it. So the question is, at what point did Maria uh, did uh, Josepha Madigan step back from this case? And I suppose the, the other question is, what advice did she give? Did mm. Knowing what we know now, does she actually believe that swings should be supervised? Does she mm. believe that if you mm. fall off a swing when you've got items in both hands, mm. that that is a legal case worth taking? All right. Uh, and you have about a, a dozen pertinent questions listed in the Irish Independent that you would like uh, Josepha Madigan uh, to answer in relation to her role in all of this. But there appears to be uh, a circling of uh, the wagons uh, from a government perspective. I did ask... Uh, Helen McEntee yesterday if she would like Josepha Madigan to make a statement uh, and uh, we'll briefly listen to her answer. Personally I don't think she does need to. Again looking at the statement that was made by the Taoiseach I think it's clear that she gave as a solicitor at the time, she was not a TD or or a minister, she gave initial advice um, that was that there was a case um, and it was then taken over by solicitors and again I think later on there was questions by the the, the 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 solicitor's office that there was possible discrepancies within the the account and I think again that was made very clear so I personally I don't think that there's anything further to add to that or to clarify she gave initial advice it was taken and then obviously it's up to an individual person if they take a claim if they continue with the case 
as to what they do themselves. So, I, I, you know, I think that was made very clear from what I have seen in the Taoiseach statement yesterday. So okay. I, I wouldn't be, be asking for anything further. Kevin Doyle of the Irish Independent, listening to Minister Helen McEntee there. And I'm not sure if you agree, Kevin, but uh, that sounds almost word for word, pit-pat perfect, in line with what the Taoiseach said to the 6-1 News last night. Yeah, it is. It's very similar. Uh, it, it seems that the effort now is to push the blame back onto Maria Bailey uh, and keep Josefa Madigan almost in a, in a in cotton wool on this one. She has been stonewalling. She has run away from journalists. She's refused to answer questions that have been sent to her office. Um, and there is clearly an effort now by the, the higher echelons within Fine Gael to push, push any blame back onto Maria Bailey. Let her be the complete fall girl, if you like. Text Michael now. Uh, but, but to let Maria Bailey take the full hit and to protect Josephine Madigan. And the logic, politically, you could say behind that is that while the Taoiseach can afford to have a scorned backbencher um, and to punish a backbencher, mm. he can't allow a minister to fall over this one and he can't allow a minister to be engulfed in scandal. He but doesn't need to, anyway. I suppose. Uh, he doesn't need to uh, do anything uh, in particular. He can take a, a lot of criticism because uh, we're all watching what's happening across the water and too afraid to do anything here, whether that's uh, from within uh, government's own circles or from the opposition side. Yeah, but we do have a budget coming in October. The numbers in the doll are tight. And, you know, you say, so you you, you lose, uh, if you remember back to last year's budget, we lost Dennis Nocton the week mm. of the budget. Um, so who knows what could happen? I mean, it, it's we can argue and say, yeah, Fianna Fáil are not going to collapse the government at this moment in time. But it is still a very shaky government. So all it could take is one whiff of a scandal or one uh, big mistake by a minister or somebody in government and suddenly all bets are off. So I think the Taoiseach is very, probably very wary that, that he can't afford to lose numbers because it is such a tight uh, tight operation he's running in Leinster House at the minute. Mm, a tight operation in Westminster as well, Kevin. I'm sure you've been uh, watching with great interest uh, the carnage as uh, a lot of uh, the UK's papers are, are describing the night of uh, the long knives or the blonde knives as the sun put it out. I think 17 ministers gone overnight. It really has been remarkable, hasn't it? I, I have to say I, I'm exhausted watching this <laughs> and I imagine most people yeah. are. Mm. It is exasperating. It's unbelievable in, in short terms to watch what is happening over there because um, if you went back even a year and I, I came on the show and said Boris Johnson's going to be Prime Minister, Dominic Raab is going to be Foreign Secretary, Jacob Rees-Moggs is going yeah. to be Leader of the House of Commons, you would have laughed at me, you would have asked me was I on the drink. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is just unbelievable the takeover, the coup that has taken place within uh, British politics, a, a peaceful coup Mm. Uh, albeit, but um, the it's very worrying though. While, while we laugh at it and it's very yeah. entertaining, and it, it, you could watch it all day and all night on Sky and BBC, mm-hmm. um, it is very worrying. How, how peaceful might it be there. though? Because I mean, a, a minister is an individual, uh, and uh, obviously they're important people, but they obviously have uh, their background staff, and they have uh, their teams, and then they have their supporters from the back benches and so on. Uh, and one minister could uh, account for a, a good portion of uh, the parliamentary party. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the, the the people in around them, though, is even interesting. And I mean, the, the, the question here is, is the, the Conservatives are still split. There's no doubt about that. Um, the Labour Party is, is confused, shall we say. Mm. Um, and then you have the Lib Dems, who obviously have a, have a pretty clear position in SNP and others. Um, but I mean, listening to the DUP this morning, they say they're going to stick with Johnson. There's no sense that they're going to... to 
to walk away from the deal they have with the Conservative Party. So that means he still has his very, very slim majority overall. But the question, I suppose, and the only thing we can really hope, based on his public statements in the last two days, is that there is still that uh, majority against a no deal within the House of Commons and that somehow they can block and thwart Johnson over the next 100 days. That's all we can hope for at this stage. Okay, Kevin, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Kevin Doyle is uh, the group political editor with Independent News and Media. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all our listeners. Seamus from Dundalk is one of those, and he was listening. He says to Boris Johnson's speech last night, Michael, and he thinks we really need to worry. He says that the new Prime Minister never once mentioned the peace process or what the implications might be if there's a hard border. There's a very real possibility, Seamus fears, that there will be a return to violence if this happens. And who in their right mind would want that? Yeah, well, the Prime Minister was saying that he wants a a deal which would mean that there wouldn't be a border. He also says that it would only be wise to prepare for a no-deal scenario. Mary says that maybe Boris won't be as bad as was as what people are predicting. Mm-hmm. However, you'd have to wonder when he said yesterday that although nobody wants a no deal, if a new deal can't be struck, Brexit is going to happen one way or the other. Yeah, well, that's what he's saying. That's he what he's saying, saying now. He is saying, yeah, and yeah, he was yeah, quite yeah, forthright yeah, yeah. in those comments, wasn't he, Michael? Ah, he was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Grania yeah. says, Michael, I won't be popular for saying this, but if the UK is adamant it won't accept a backstop, would we better, would we not be better off seeing what new deal they are proposing as opposed to to them crashing out with a no deal. Yeah. Do you understand her? I do understand her, yeah. Well, I suppose uh, that's the thing. Uh, if you don't have a backstop and they don't accept that situation, well, then you don't have a backstop. Uh, and uh, that's uh, the irony of the whole thing. And I suppose a lot of people are asking that question. Uh, I think it's a, a game of brinkmanship and to see who will fold first. And uh, I think a lot of people are... are Guessing uh, that uh, the British won't leave without a, a deal and that something else will happen, uh, that they'll cave in one way or another, either through an election or a mm. referendum or whatever else happens. Pat from Carrick Cross, Michael, wants to know, do you remember a film that came out a couple of decades ago called The Village of Damned? No. Um, he says it was all about the blonde children that were taking over the world. I know. <laughs> Stop it, Pat. That's <laughs> enough of that. Wonders, oh, don't, this, don't, don't continue. Is this what's happening no, now? <laughs> no, it's not. No, As no, we have you're going Boris to get us in trouble. And Trump. No, <laughs> yeah, so that's Pat's yeah, thought. I yeah, did actually yeah, look yeah, up yeah. the movie, and they were scary looking children. <laughs> okay, I have to say. Fair enough. No, I never heard of it yet. <laughs> I hadn't either. Yeah, you see, okay, yeah, uh, we're not yeah. as old, maybe as Pat thinks. But anyway, okay. uh, Brian also contacted us, and Brian says, looking at events unfold in the UK, I think our only hope now is a general election but even then the Conservatives could still be in power. I'd love to know if the majority of people living in the UK still want to leave. Yeah, well, I, I don't know, but I do know that the Labour Party have said that they'll campaign to stay if uh, there is a, a referendum. Mm. And it's not just one 
singular view that is held in the United Kingdom. There's not just one singular view that's held in the House of Commons. And we'll hear some of the debate. We're in for some raunchy stuff now. Let's uh, hear a little bit of uh, Theresa May's last question time as Prime Minister. Following my duties in this House this afternoon, I shall have an audience of Her Majesty the Queen. I shall then continue with my duties in this House from the back benches, where I will continue to be the Member of Parliament for Maidenhead. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I profoundly disagree with many of the decisions the Prime Minister has made and many of the things she says. But I recognise that she does have a respect for public service and for the future of our country. So how does she feel about handing over to a man who, among many things, is happy to demonise Muslims, is prepared to chuck our loyal public servants and diplomats under a bus, and promises to sell our country out to Donald Trump and his friends. Strong stuff from Ruth Cadbury, but she was really just the warm-up act for Jeremy Corbyn. Now he started off. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewellery and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way, and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Fairly likely. I hope, Mr Speaker, that she has a marginally more relaxing time on the back branches and perhaps like the Chancellor, even helping me to oppose the reckless plans of her successor. (laughs) Okay. Somewhat tongue-in-cheek. And I think it was appreciated by most members of uh, the House, but then they went at it. On Brexit, the Prime Minister's own red lines ruled out any sensible compromise deal. Only after she had missed her own deadline to leave did the Prime Minister even begin to shift her position. But by then, she no longer had the authority to deliver. Her successor has no mandate at all. Does she have confidence that the honourable, right honourable member for Uxbridge will succeed where she has not? Can I just say to the right honourable gentleman, I worked tirelessly to get a good deal for the UK and I also worked hard to get that deal through this Parliament. I voted for the deal. What did the right 
right honourable gentleman do? He voted against a deal. He voted to make no deal more likely. And when there was a prospect of reaching consensus across this House, the right honourable gentleman walked away from the talks. At every stage, his only interest has been playing party politics. And frankly, he should be ashamed of himself. We've had three years of bungled negotiations and we now have the spectacle of a Prime Minister coming into office with no electoral mandate, looking for a Brexit deal that has been ruled out by the European Union or, in the case of a no deal, ruled out by the majority in this House and by anyone that understands the dangers to the British economy of a no deal. The next Prime Minister thought the Isle of Man was in the European Union and that the European Union made rules about kippers that, in fact, were made by the government that he was part of. He also said the UK could secure tariff-free trade through Article 24 of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, despite the Trade Secretary, Attorney General, Governor of the Bank of England, all confirming that is not possible. At the start of 2018, uh, it's coming, don't worry. At the start of 2018, Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister herself set up a new unit to counter fake news, charged with combating disinformation. How successful does she think that's been? say to the right honourable gentleman that I, I fear that our success hasn't been what we, uh, what we wanted it to be from the amount of fake news and fake information he uses at that dispatch box. Well, may, maybe, maybe, Mr Speaker, she can have a word with her successor on the way out. As you can hear, it wasn't the usual kind of uh, pleasantries uh, that you might expect uh, for the Prime Minister's last question time. And Theresa May hearing from Jeremy Corbyn, who asked her then what she thought Boris Johnson might do as uh, the first thing he does when he takes office. Doesn't she agree the best thing the Right Honourable Member for Uxbridge could do later on today when he takes office is to call a general election and let the people decide their future. My first answer to the right honourable gentleman is no. say that is the strength of our British democracy that the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition have these exchanges across their dispatch boxes every week at two swords length. Uh, no quarter is sought and none is given. And that's as it should be in our adversarial parliamentary democracy. But he and I are very different people and with very, with very, very different politicians. I think we approach the issues we face in this country in different ways. I have spent all but one of my years in this House on the front bench trying to implement the policies I believe in. He has spent most of his time on the back benches campaigning for what he believes in, often against his own party. But what I think we both have in common 
is a commitment to our constituencies. I saw that after the terrorist attack in Finsbury Park Mosque and his constituency. And, uh, but perhaps I could just finish my exchange with him by saying this. As a party leader who has accepted when her time was up, perhaps the time is now for him to do the same. Theresa May's last question time as Prime Minister and as Kevin Doyle said to us, very, very entertaining stuff altogether. Marie, but uh, very, very serious stuff at the same time. Absolutely. You Mm. you have to wonder how history will Mm. judge Theresa May Mm. because I think Lothar or like her, you know, she definitely, that fighting spirit that she has, I think you have to admire it from afar. Okay. You know, even to the end, I'm saying in there, her last day, she was still giving it, giving it up to them. Um, Sean says we're doomed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's not a laughing Mm. matter to him at all. Um, And he says Boris Johnson doesn't care about Ireland. That much was evident yesterday. He's going to leave the EU no matter what. The government here may get everything in place. Businesses need to be prepared because the hard border is looking likely that it's going to happen. Time will tell. What the government stated would probably never happen, says Alan, is probably going to happen. I just hope there's no return to violence in this country. It would be awful, just awful, if we have to have checks and mm. queues on the border again. Yeah, well, we'd all be impoverished. Uh, undoubtedly, there'd be a return to violence. Uh, and it's unthinkable. Uh, so unthinkable that I'm not thinking about it. I can't. <laughs> I mean, I am thinking about it, but I don't think it'll actually happen. I think common sense but, has to prevail. But, but that's what people have been mm. saying all along. Yeah. Even, even after events yesterday, you think it probably won't happen? No. Okay. Especially after events yesterday. Right. Mm. right. Especially mm. after events yesterday. Well, Enda says, I don't know how they're going to reach a solution at all, Michael. The Brexiteers don't um, want to give way in relation to the backstop. Uh, you have the majority in the House of Commons who don't want a no deal. So where are they going to meet halfway? Mm. Enda wants to know. Different membership of the House of Commons. Mm. So, a general election and a referendum. Yep, <laughs> okay. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll mm. see, we'll see. Right, we'll end on that one, Michael. Okay, thanks for that. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1857 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, to the third secret of Fatima. Or why is it that Senator Ray Butler has been deselected by Fine Gael to run as an election candidate in the next general election in Mead West? I, I, I can't. I'm afraid that that's not something that I'm involved in or party to. That was a decision that was made by the national executive, and, and that's all that I know. And, and you know, that, that's all that I know. It's not something that I would have been party to, involved with. Really? Um, Did you not ask? Well, it, it, it's a process and, and the decision that was decided by the national executive. They're the body. They have representatives from our own political party that are on it, um, as well as members from around the, the country. And, and they make decisions, I suppose, based on, mm. on evidence engagement and, and other things. Yeah, but this, the, the, this man lost his seat as a, a TD. There were many questions surrounding uh, 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 some activity uh, uh, that Ray Butler never addressed, refused 
to engage in conversation with, stopped, went to ground, stopped taking interviews, stopped talking to his local radio station and was appointed a senator by the Taoiseach of the day, Enda Kenny. Now he's been deselected as a, a candidate for Fine Gael uh, and uh, one of the senior members in the county doesn't know why and hasn't asked why. Is it, God, should you not have asked why, Minister? Well, this is not for me to comment on. It's absolutely, to be honest, I, I've worked with Ray Butler and I've always found him a very good colleague to work with. He has been deselected. It's not a decision that was uh, in any way connected with me or any other person within our county. Um, I wish him well for the future, but this is a decision that was taken by the party. And other than that, I don't think it would be appropriate for me to comment on on anything else. Do you think somebody should comment? Uh, Do you think that your constituents would like to know and have a right to know? Well, I, I think it's up to Deputy Butler to engage if he wants to on this issue. But I think Senator he Butler has been, yeah. or, or, sorry, yeah. to Senator mm. Butler. Yeah. Yeah. He lost his seat uh, and then was appointed a senator and then uh, kept the money that he should have given back, uh, said that he wouldn't take, uh, and it took an inordinate amount of time to pay back that money. Again, this is not something that, that I'm party to. Anything, mm. any concerns, as far as I'm aware, that were raised have been resolved. He is no longer a deputy. He will no longer be on the ticket. And as far as I'm concerned, I really don't have anything further to say than to wish him well. Um, and I, you know, I, I think anybody that mm. knows him will have the opportunity, I'm sure, to, to speak to him. Um, but for me, I, I really well, don't. I doubt his local radio station will. I doubt his local radio station will. All right, and uh, it would be very unusual if Ray Butler did. He hasn't spoken to this radio station uh, since 2015 and uh, voices for a €1,000 were submitted to Mead County Council to pay two local bands who said they had never been paid, uh, but uh, as part of those invoices, handwritten statements uh, said that they had been paid with thanks. Anyway, that was Helen McEntee, uh, Minister Helen McEntee, speaking to us yesterday. Since then, we've asked uh, if... uh, Minister McEntee might want to find out more, ask something and come back to us and talk to us about it. But Minister McEntee is not available to us today. We asked Minister Regina Doherty, another Fine Gael TD in Meath East, if she'd like to talk to us about it. She's not available to us today. Uh, we sought uh, to speak with Minister Damien English, uh, but failed to, to make contact with him. We did speak uh, with uh, a spokesperson for Minister English, uh, who said that he was on holidays. Uh, let's talk about this uh, with Patrick Tobin, who's uh, the leader of uh, the AIM2 party and a TD for Meath West. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. It's a very unusual thing for an election candidate to be deselected, is it not? It is. On a human level, I'd, you'd have to have some sympathy uh, for Ray Butler in this situation because it's very, very unusual that a political party would select an individual, thereby saying that this is a, a person of good character who we want to represent uh, the county in the Dáil, and then shortly afterwards deselect an individual. Um, it, it's, it's sloppy at very best, and it maybe shows a lot of, uh, let's say, political shenanigans and tensions in uh, Fine Gael in County Meath uh, at the moment. There's no doubt, obviously, that the, the speculation around a number of financial issues uh, over the past has done you know, Ray damaged, you mentioned the fact that he hasn't been speaking to his local radio station, which, you know, is, is it's very hard to see how you can win a seat if you're not in communication with your local radio station uh, on a regular basis. Um, but for me, I think that the, the, the obvious reason why Fine Gael deselected Ray was the massive votes that Noel French achieved uh, in the trim area, just in the local elections gone by. And... Um, 
you know, they selected three candidates. I think they're trying to repeat the results that they had in 2011. Remember, in 2011, they had three candidates uh, and the transfers uh, of Catherine Yor, who was the, the candidate who came in third, put Ray Butler over the line uh, with regards to transfers. And maybe they're looking for a, a similar tactic uh, on this occasion. Uh, and indeed, there was speculation that maybe Noel French would run as an independent if he didn't get the Fine Gael selection uh, in the general uh, election. And um, if he had have done that, you know, that would have taken maybe 5,000 votes off the Fine Gael vote in Midwest. And, you know, party bosses were probably just not going to allow that to happen. Um, so it, it, it looks like, uh, for me, mm. it's, it was purely on the basis of who's going to achieve what for Fine Gael in County Mead on the vote level. You know, in, in Fine Gael and parties such as that, um, you know, it's often the the colleague within the party who's the biggest threat to you uh, when it comes to elections. <clears throat> so I can't imagine mm. that on a personal level that yeah. Damien English or Sarah Riley would actually uh, be very happy or excited about the fact that uh, Noel will be on the ticket uh, in Midwest, and um, uh, and it's uh, a quite, I mean, quite, I think, quite difficult for them in the future. I think everybody would uh, agree with you. Um, it's a, a terrible time for Ray Butler, and it's hard not to sympathise with him. I, I mean, I imagine this is the end of his political political career, and to deselect him uh, from uh, the ticket like this uh, must uh, be destroying him politically. Uh, but uh, when it comes to political parties. Uh, there is a communication. We talked about the importance of communication. There's a, a lot of talk between political parties. Uh, and I don't know, I, I found it uh, very hard to believe what was being said yesterday. Do you find what Minister McEntee said yesterday credible, that she doesn't know anything about it? No, it, it, it's not credible. Um, because I spoke to Fine Gael TDs in the Dáil over the last three or four weeks since the local elections. And these TDs themselves, people from different parts of the country were speculating that this would happen. And, um, you know, it's as obvious as the day is long that, uh, you know, Fine Gael have a potential vote winner in Noel French and, you know, have decided to put their all their chips onto, onto his colours um, as a result. Now, remember as well that Ray Butler got about 2,000 votes in 2009 and uh, in the local elections, which was a massive vote, you know, not as high as Noel's in the last, local election, but similar. Mm. Uh, and he got a, a big vote in 2011 uh, as well. But, you know... It's, but not it's, enough, not enough. Uh, uh, and he lost a seat and he got the golden handshake, 30,000 or thereabouts. Uh, and that was on the basis that, you know, he, he'd go and uh, enjoy some time relaxing, pipe and slippers and retire from politics. But he was appointed to the Shannon and therein was asked to pay back the €30,000 because he wasn't entitled to it. Uh, and he only did that in the last couple of months. I've always advised people not to take these handshakes. Um, when I left the council, uh, I was offered one of these uh, retirement or, or golden handshakes, and I refused it at the time because, in, in my view, you know, if you're committed to the development of your county and your your instinct is involved in the, in the political development of your county, well, then logic would dictate that uh, you don't take it because one, mm. it's taxpayers' money, and two, you know, if you're going to get back in there to do your best. You know, you're simply going to have, have to give it back as well. I think that Fine Gael feel that they're, they're in a squeezed situation. In 2011, they got about 45% of the vote in Midwest. That fell to about 32% of the vote in 2016. And if you look at the fact that Fine Gael had, have at this moment in time four Oireachtas members in the county, 
and yet the county is coming last in so many investment areas. You, your show this week alone was talking about the fact that we're coming last, or very close to last with regards uh, health spending per capita uh, in this county. And uh, as a result, you could see um, the vote actually slipping over the last number of years. And I think that there were worries that they needed to do the best they could to, to keep that vote. If you look at how the vote is now spread over the uh, Midwest constituency in the local elections, it's very interesting. Fianna Gael got a, have a big vote in the Trim area and a decent-sized vote in the Kells area. Mm. But their vote is the lowest place to have a vote is in the Navin area, which is actually Damien's base. Um, Fianna Gael came in at 14% Damien in the Navin mm. uh, area uh, in the local elections. And between the three candidates, they were really lucky, actually, to get anybody elected there. So um, y- you can imagine the shenanigans that happened in the last general election. Those those allegations made that... Yeah. Damien's team went in with leaflets into the trim area just before the, the general election uh, to see could they shore up some boats in what was considered to be Ray's area mm. uh, there. That, you know, some of those are going to be happening again. There's going to be fierce, I imagine, uh, in, internal yeah. Gael, uh, competition uh, in the election as it goes forward. And I, I don't know what you know about this, uh, but do you think that this uh, has to do with the controversies that surrounded Ray Butler, the monies uh, that were paid to bands and not paid to bands at the St. Patrick's Day Festival and all that stuff, or the money that he received in the Golden Handshake and was asked to pay back and didn't pay back uh, until uh, a couple of months ago? Uh, or is it to do with uh, this ongoing split in the party in County Mead that we've been hearing about for a long time uh, which ended up in a, a court case and uh, we've seen divisions in the party in the way that John Farley was reported on to LMFM News and uh, how he's uh, been forced to stand down from his role. Uh, is all of this part of that, do you think, or is it to do with something yeah. else? Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil are, are, are different types of parties. So in, in my experience, those parties are what I would call vehicles of personal ambition. So, in other words, they allow for people with very little ideological, uh, let's say, ties to share a platform and to build in their own areas for themselves uh, a a political, um, I suppose, franchise. And as a result, you know, you don't have the same kind of teamwork. You don't have the same, you know, um, very, let's say, strong kind of a functioning organization. And, you know, we saw that in the general election on the last occasion where, you know, Helen McEntee and Regina Doherty, you know, there's no love lost between those two candidates in their battle to take a seat in, in Mid-East. Mm. You know, other political parties who are, let's say, smaller, but maybe are ideologically stronger, are more likely to work together in a more uh, camaraderie fashion to achieve their political uh, goals and outcomes. Uh, but that doesn't happen within typically Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. And, and I, I, think, I think to some degree we've highlighted how some individuals, at least in Fianna Gael, have tried to manage stories on this programme, let's say, uh, and without rehashing that. Uh, but to build on that point, if you like, there is always this claim that Fine Gael is a party of spin and that they like to manage stories. And they've certainly been managing this story very well. Uh, and I just want to reiterate to people listening to us this morning in case they think this is very unfair. We did ask Helen McIntyre, not available. We did ask Regina Doherty, not available. We did try to get Damien English, not contactable, to speak to us today. And our door is open to anybody in Fidegale who wishes to speak to us about this specifically and to tell us what they know, if they know anything about it, because so far we've been stonewalled. All we've got is one line from the National uh, Press Office saying that Ray Butler was 
was deselected. And that's it. The story goes away. Nobody's talking about it. It's been very well managed up to now, hasn't it? It has, and if, if you're a member of Ray Butler's team or the you know the, the four and a half thousand people who voted for him um, in the general election just gone by, you would have to ask serious questions of the political party um, of Fine Gael because um, you know if if a, if a fellow like that has invested so much time in an organisation, usually loyalty goes both directions, and um, you know you mentioned the difficulties that Ray has had over over the last period of time, but at the very least. Any individual who has been selected for a political party should have the common decency of that party to explain why uh, and why this has happened. Um, I think we, we probably all know why why it's happened, uh, and that's in around the fact that Noel French has has come up with this big strong vote in the, the southwest of the county. But it's just sloppy uh, to select a person to give something to somebody, and then in a very public fashion to take it off them again. Uh, without any excuse, any reason, any logic uh, in advance of it. And it's clear that everybody in Fine Gael and Meath has gone to ground because they know that it's just it's just bad business uh, to do your, 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 your political work uh, in such fashion and none of them want to actually take responsibility for it. Um, I think, you know, they would be much better, um, much better actually uh, helped if they were honest with their electorate, with their supporters, and stated these are the reasons uh, it's happened mm. and this is a project we have well, for me you know, and we want to go on in the future. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very welcome to come on uh, uh, and explain it to the listeners uh, uh, to the constituents uh, to the people who voted Fine Gael or not if uh, they don't think it's any of their business that's fine and that's uh, their prerogative uh, we leave it there for the moment though thank you for joining us uh, this morning Patrick Tobin the leader of the AIN2 party and uh, TD for Meath West Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The Irish Farmers Association has made its pre-budget submission asking government to shield farmers from Brexit, Mercosur and the beef crisis, amongst other things, in October. Joe Healy is uh, the president of the IFA and he's on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Since making your submission, we've uh, a new Prime Minister in the United Kingdom. Has Mr Johnson said anything or given any indication to you that there's less reason to be fearful of Brexit. And there's always uh, reason to be fearful. I don't think he has, uh, I suppose people haven't passed a whole pile of marks of the, the bluster he comes out with, um, you know, and it, I don't think it's going to change. Now, on the other hand, and we saw in Northern Ireland that the extremes had to be brought to the table before the peace process could be finalised. You'd be hoping, and maybe it's a case of letting the heart rule the head, but you'd be hoping that the ability he has to do U-turns and to say one thing today and another tomorrow and still keep his followers, um, that that might work to the advantage of, uh, you know, getting a Brexit that, as we highlighted as far back as three years ago, mm. uh, a Brexit that ensures that the closest possible trading relationship between the EU and the UK continues, but also that the value of that UK market would be maintained. Because I think it's obvious even talking to, to farmers across the UK, up in Northern Ireland, and indeed the Parliament as well, that there isn't a majority there for a no deal. He's started off on uh, the wrong foot, though, hasn't he, in the sense uh, that he's been hurling uh, abuse at European leaders, uh, the Murphys here, or Vradkers, as yeah. the case may be, uh, Angela Merkel, Emmanuel Macron, uh, and he's made a lot of enemies uh, with 17 ministers gone overnight. Well, he, he has, and uh, but 
But I don't think he has done anything more than Trump that uh, we haven't expected from him. And I think people, you know, anyone that gets elected like that and in the build-up to the election, they, you know, they're going to be making noises and he probably wants to get the message across to them uh, that he's starting as he means to go on and he obviously wants to get across very clear messages. So mm. I just wouldn't pay a whole pile of attention to what he'd have said in the last couple of days. Um, I think when he sits down and sits down with advisors and that, and when they look uh, across the UK and the, the importance of being part of the largest trading bloc in the world, that being the European Union, um, that they realise that, you know, it's just not too simple to step away from from a block and take up where you left off because, you know, you're going out into the big bad world on your mm. own and as part of the European Union, you have a power. You can sit at any of the world tables well, that includes America, uh, that includes China. But as individuals, whether you're France, Germany, Italy, that way, uh, Spain, the UK, you know, we'd have looked at those as big countries in the past. But alone, um, I'm not so sure that they'll be taken very seriously, that any of us will be taken very seriously, any of the European countries on their own, but as part of a trading bloc. If you look even at trading trade deals, it takes an average of seven years. That's the average time it takes mm. to get a trade deal over the line. In the worst case scenario, if the UK crashes out and if the UK crashes out at Halloween on the 31st of October, what should government be doing to compensate farmers? Uh, because undoubtedly there's going to be a crisis like one that has never been seen before. Yeah, and we've always said that it's the greatest challenge uh, with the biggest potential threat to Irish agriculture in any of our lifetimes. That hasn't changed and definitely is the case now. And if you look at it, Michael, that over the last three years since the referendum, the Irish government, Borbia, all the marketing agencies would have um, concentrated on all the other countries around the world mm. to try and maximise our market share there and to get into new markets with very little emphasis on the UK and still, despite that, our agri-food exports to the UK last year increased by 2% from 35% the year before to 37% of our total agri-food exports last year. So that highlights the importance of the UK market to us. It highlights the fact that geography and market returns will dictate where you do your trade. And if there's a no-deal um, scenario, there will have to be unbelievable, uh, huge uh, and significant compensation packages. Well, support packages, should I say, put in place to allow us to get over that hump because it would really devastate our market for beef in the UK. I don't think, I'd be fairly confident, that we can't compete against countries. Can you put uh, that in context, Joe Healy? Uh, I mean, what is it, about 300,000 tonnes of beef that's exported to the United Kingdom now? Uh, in yeah. a no-deal scenario, uh, would we still export beef or uh, by how much would it be reduced? Well, look, um, you're, you're spot on. 298,000 tonnes or 52% of our total beef exports last year went to the UK. Now, when you compare that with the likes of America or China that we hear so much talk about, we put 3,000 tonnes, 3,000 tonnes mm. into those two countries last year compared with 300,000 tonnes into the UK. So if there's a tariff, in the case of a no-deal situation and if WTO rules applied, mm. well, we just we just wouldn't be able to compete. I couldn't see how 
our meat, our beef could go onto the UK shelf because we'd be competing with the likes of Brazil where their um, costs of production are less than half our cost of production. Well, uh, explain it to me. I, I mean, if uh, I was shopping uh, in a supermarket in the United Kingdom, I was to buy best cut of uh, beef for four or five pounds now, how much would it cost uh, after tariffs? You'd probably be talking about double that. Right. And you'd still be able to buy beef and very fine beef at the same price. Yes. At four or five. So so you'd have the Irish oh, beef yeah. there for ten pounds, I'd say, and, 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 and something very similar for five pounds. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I'd probably be careful about saying very fine beef because yeah, uh, no, that I, leads us into Mercosur. Sure, and if, sure. if we look at Mercosur, if we produced, that's why we in the IFA are so much against this Mercosur mm. trade deal. Because if Irish or European farmers produced beef to the same standards as Brazil produced it, it would be illegal for us to sell that beef onto any shelf in any supermarket all over Europe. Okay, I accept and that. But but from the consumer's point of view, oh, lo- yeah. looking at the supermarket shelf, you see one piece of beef, five pounds, uh, what seems to you to be an identical piece of beef for ten pounds, you're going to pick the one for five pounds, and that's where the problems are. So will anybody buy the Irish beef, I suppose, is the next question. Well, you see, first of all, the, the retailers and the supermarkets and that they probably wouldn't be in the market for Irish beef if they could get cheaper beef. And that's the fear with the UK government that they will pursue a cheap food policy and we can we can listen to them talk about they want to maintain the standards. If they see the votes where uh, where those people will, will rightly or will go for that four and five pound piece of beef that you talk mm-hmm. about, um, that's what the government, the UK government will pursue. And that's our fear. And they won't worry about the size of a football pitch being cut down every minute in Brazil uh, in the Amazon rainforest to produce more beef. They won't worry about the fact that cattle out there don't have to be tagged until about three months before they're sold, whereas they have to be tagged and identified here within seven days of birth. And perhaps that will or won't happen. I mean, but that's a couple of years down the line. In a couple of months' time, we're looking into the reality of Brexit or or not. So given how important the UK market is to Irish beef farming, uh, what will it mean? Uh, I mean, will it be worthwhile farming if so much of what is exported is not being sold anymore? Yeah, and look, unfortunately at the moment the beef right across the European Union is under pressure. Beef prices, when you take it that France, Spain, uh, Germany, or the UK, that there are very little between their prices and our prices, and we're on very low prices here. But it's just a very difficult market with the uncertainty of Brexit and Mercosur. You know, if we hadn't the UK market at this point in time, I dread to think where uh, our beef prices would be. So it's hugely important. And that's why, you know, I think it's it's uh, well worth the government's file and the EU's file to allow the new prime minister, to allow Boris Johnson, bed in, say whatever he has to say, don't get involved in the tit for tat mm-hmm. with him or the rhetoric and allow him to bed in and sit down and do the negotiations behind uh, the table or behind closed doors and then let him try and sell it to his people uh, of which he has a lot of supporters. You you just cannot ignore the fact that he got two uh, to one votes over quite a, 
a formidable candidate as well. And would it be possible uh, to save the livelihoods of uh, the farmers and uh, to uh, have a a positive impact on the overall Irish economy for farmers uh, to transfer into dairy? Uh, Because uh, that's what's been suggested in terms of reducing the cattle herd uh, for climate reasons. Yeah, well, first of all, on that uh, climate action report yesterday, uh, to to this climate action committee, I would say... Personally, I'm very disappointed at their lazy approach. Uh, I think they picked on the easy target uh, that so many others are picking on as well without uh, ever uh, alluding to the economic and social uh, fabric of rural Ireland and the important role that the suckler cow plays in every village and parish around Ireland because the suckler cow and beef is produced on a lot of farms that either the land type or the farm structure or the farm mm. fragmentation isn't conducive to tillage farming and our dairy farming. Um, you know, we have and they're saying cut the national herd by 30%, 500,000 cattle, but they should come from the beef sector. Yeah, they are. And like what, what I, I think, uh, as well as being lazy, it shows the flawed logic of uh, looking at emissions from a food production point of view on a single country basis, because the European Commission Joint Research Centre has highlighted quite clearly that we're in the top five most carbon-efficient producers of uh, beef in Europe. Now, if the beef isn't produced in Ireland, it's going to be produced in other countries that are less efficient than us. We mentioned Brazil already, Michael, mm-hmm. and if you take that to produce a kilo of beef in Ireland, we produce about 18 kilos of CO2. To produce that same kilo of beef in Brazil, they produce 80 kilos of CO2. So the vacuum that's left by reducing the cow numbers in Ireland, the sucker cow numbers, will be filled by other countries, probably the likes of Brazil, where their carbon footprint in beef production is over four times what we have here in Ireland. So I think that um, I'm, I was going to say surprised, but disappointed. I'm not really surprised with some of the people uh, concerned, but disappointed that they just look on... Um, carbon emissions in an Irish contest. Okay. Climate, climate change is a global issue. It's not just an Irish issue. We have... And outside of the climate issue, just very briefly, uh, in terms of Brexit uh, and losing the British market and given how important it is to us as we've uh, been discussing, is it possible that the solution would lie in beef farmers transferring into dairy farming? It's, it's not possible, no, because yeah. the land doesn't... Uh, some of them might, but definitely not. Like if you even look down the western seaboard, many parts around the country, um, you know, it's. But like, I think what we can't forget is that the suckler cow is the backbone of rural Ireland. It underpins a sector that's worth three billion to the national economy right across the country. So uh, we've had, if this climate action committee gets their own way, and if their proposals are taken on board well, then you lose one and a half billion euros to the rural economy. I think what the Climate Action Committee and what the government needs to be looking at is the likes of the Chagas Roadmap that highlights the fact that if their supports and infrastructure are put in place, Irish agriculture has the potential to continue to produce while reducing our emissions by 30%. And just remember, and I'll finish on this, that in 1990 to now, we've increased our agricultural output by 40%, and we've done that without any increase in our agricultural emissions. Okay, many challenges. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Joe Healy, President of the IFA, the Irish Farmers Association. 
Now, we heard earlier this week uh, that uh, the Royal College of Physicians has called on the government uh, to make it illegal to sell e-cigarettes to people under the age of 18 and also to add a euro to the price of cigarettes in the upcoming budget. Benny Gilson, spokesperson for Retailers Against Smuggling, is on the line. And you agree with the physicians to some extent, Benny? Uh, we do indeed, Michael. We agree with positions uh, on the line of them calling for uh, more resources with regards to dealing with the level of uh, smuggled cigarettes that's coming into the country. This is the first time that any of these organisations have come out and spoke about this, uh, you know, because mm. of the fact that the, the amount of cigarettes that are being sold illegally now is on the up and up. And is the solution, as the positions suggest, making it more expensive to buy the legal cigarettes, increasing the price by a euro so you'd have the money to spend on uh, cracking down on smuggling. That's what, that's what their approach is. But, you know, we have seen, Michael, for the last eight, nine years, we've had an increase every year in the budget. And whilst we've had that increase, the only ones that have been hit are the genuine retailers. You know, the, the, mm. the criminals are still getting away. They're appearing, appearing in court on a regular basis. And they're walking away, walking out laughing at the system. Right. Uh, it's far from a, a funny uh, matter. Uh, I'm sure you've uh, noticed people walking into shops uh, with wheelbarrows in order to carry enough money to buy a packet of cigarettes. What are they? Th- uh, Thirteen fifty is what they'd be if they increased it by a, a euro. Was it? That's correct, Michael. They will be. They will be going up to thirteen fifty. We are at the present time the dearest country uh, in the EU for cigarettes, and now we'll become the de- one of the dearest in the world for cigarettes. You know, so it's uh, it, it, it isn't having the effect that people are saying it will have. The mm-hmm. increase is not having that effect simply because of the fact that the smuggled cigarettes and the smuggled market is growing and, and growing it, at a fast rate. It was always cheaper to smoke rollies, uh, and is that why more of the roll your own tobacco is coming into the country? Uh, well, it's obvious because we have increased the price of roll-your-own tobacco here. Uh, the average price of a packet of roll-your-own tobacco now is €16. Euro, and uh, the average price on the street of a packet of roll-your-own tobacco is €5. Euro. Uh, and on top of that, the pack size where for us is 30 gram. The pack size on the street is 50 gram. Right. OK. So it's like about €2.53 Euro in reality. That's correct. That's correct. So the size for them is, is, is greater. You know, none of us know whether it is legitimate tobacco that's in it or not, but it is there on the street. It's there for sale. And it's like the cigarette. Uh, why would somebody come into me and buy a packet of cigarettes at 30, 12 euro or 13 euro when they can buy them on the street at five? And they shouldn't be on the street. That's your argument. Benny, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank okay, you indeed for joining us as always. Benny Gilson, and spokesperson for the Retailers Against Smuggling Group, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.